We're continuing this morning our look at the biblical book of Esther that we find in the Old Testament. We'll be on page 487 in the Pew Bible in front of you looking at Esther 6 today. Chapter 5, which we looked at last week, ended on a very worrisome note. Esther was making her plans to meet for a second night in a row with King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, and his advisor Haman in an effort to save the Jewish people and overthrow Haman, who was trying to kill the Jewish people. But we read at the end of last week that during the night, Haman was concocting his own secret plan to have Mordecai executed in the morning. Esther didn't know this. Mordecai, he didn't know it. So it seemed that Esther's request was going to save the Jewish people, but not in time to save Mordecai. That is unless something happened. Something like truly unexpected. And wouldn't you know it? Something unexpected happens in chapter 6. And so if you open up your Bibles to chapter 6, we find a very unlikely turn of events. Some might call it coincidence. Esther chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, And they were read before the king, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king to delight, delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head the royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes, And the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. 
Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks that your word is more of a page turner than the chronicles of what some king did long ago. Because, Lord, it tells us of the true king, of you, O God, and your rule over us and how we have fallen from your good standing, but how you have redeemed us in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, speak to us through your word, this very word that the Holy Spirit has inspired, and use me in spite of my own sin and weakness to proclaim your word and give us the ears to hear, O Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us through this word, that we would know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. In Esther 6, we pick up with a hanging thread because we were left hanging with Haman's plans to hang Mordecai at the end of chapter 5. That deliverance was needed for the sake of Mordecai, but there was no savior to be found. Who would even know this plan? Things looked very hopeless for Mordecai. But then the story turns because Ahasuerus tosses and turns in bed. And he is unable to sleep. And what does a king do when he cannot sleep at night? He calls in one of his wives or concubines to keep him company. No, it doesn't say that. He orders room service. No. Gets a massage. Watches Netflix. None of these things. The king wants someone to read him a book. And not just any book, but the gripping page-turner recording the memorable deeds of his own reign. Hey, flip to that part where I did that really good thing. I love that part. Read it again. Yeah, that's good. And what part catches the eye of the king as he's reading through all the great stuff he's done, but about how Mordecai saved his life from a conspiracy to kill him? We read about that way back in chapter 2. And now, nearly five years after that event, the king decides, well, I need to reward Mordecai for this service. And so instead of ordering Mordecai's execution that morning, he orders a parade to be thrown in his honor. Now that is quite an unexpected turn of events. Salvation from Mordecai seems to come out of nowhere, out of just the sleeplessness of the king. It makes me think of the phrase, stranger than fiction, how sometimes in our bizarre world, things go all sorts of different ways that even the best novelist could not dream up the turns of events we see in our lives. We expect to see certain things flow in certain patterns when there's an author writing a book, but in the story of life, it is a bit more unexpected to see such turns. And so often we ask ourselves, do these things happen by mere chance or coincidence? 
Or is there a divine author who is providentially writing the story of all of our lives? The events of this chapter may seem like a coincidence, especially because God is never mentioned by name, but the author of this story, though he leaves God unmentioned, wants us to think, now wait a second, that just didn't happen by coincidence. Surely something else is going on here, that there is something going on behind the scenes, that God works in the ordinary events of life to bring about his purposes. That's what the Bible teaches here in Esther, as well as elsewhere in Scripture, that God is always working by His hidden providence in many ways that people would say, well, that's just coincidence. But there are no coincidences because these plans always seem to work in accordance with God's purposes and promises. Now, that's a bold statement. How do we know that? Because if you look around in the world, you'd be like, wait, this is going according to God's plan? That thing on the news and that thing that happened and this over here, that's according to God's purposes and plans? Is God's providential hand broken and in a cast? Are we having trouble here? What's going on? Why are things so bad if God's really in control? Well, authors tend to have certain calling cards, certain ways of telling their stories, You expect certain beats or movements in the stories, and actually letting things get bad, that's one of the things God does in his story over and over again, whether it's the Israelites in Egypt or the Jews here in exile. We know that from other stories. If you like to read mystery novels, you're probably familiar with the fact that, oh, I bet it's this one, no, this one, no, this one. Oh, it was that one who was hiding in plain sight the whole time. That's every mystery novel. You're probably like fantasy novels, and you love being introduced into a fantasy world that seems so different from our own, but you come to realize during the course of the story, the problems they deal with are the same problems we deal with, just without wizards and dragons and things. If you've read books, you know the good guy typically wins in the end. Stories follow patterns, and one of the patterns that God likes to use are his promises. And one such promise or pattern that God repeatedly uses is that he humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. He humbles the proud and exalts the humble. And that message is loud and clear in Esther 6. And we see it in the three main characters of the story, the king, Haman, and Mordecai. Sorry, Esther is on the sidelines this week taking a week off. See, the king demonstrates a desire to honor those who serve him. We hear this phrase, the man whom the king delights to honor. We hear it six times in the chapter. Because kings and world leaders like to honor people who serve them. It builds loyalty. It explains why the king was so concerned late at night or very early in the morning when he learned that Mordecai was never properly honored for saving his life. Why would people save the king's life if you don't even get a thank you from it? Perhaps the next time Mordecai heard of a conspiracy, instead of telling the king about it, he'd say, all right, I'm in. And so he wanted to ensure that he was rewarded and honored for such a good and loyal deed. That even in the midst of an ungodly empire, we see a ruler acting in a godly way by honoring someone who humbly served the king. 
instead of someone who just selfishly sought their own good. Mordecai is a perfect picture of humble service. Now, we don't know for sure if Mordecai was resentful over these five years for the lack of honor. All we know is that he continued to go to work, sit at the king's gate, even though he had never gotten a thank you. It seems like Mordecai saw what he did to save the king as his duty, his service, not anything worthy of a reward. That humble service is further evidenced later in the chapter when Mordecai is paraded through the city square. That in God's providence, the humble servant Mordecai was exalted. And we look and we're like, I wonder what Mordecai did afterwards. Did he go out for drinks with his buddies and say, it's about time, all right? I did that and it's great and everyone knows how wonderful I am. No, he didn't do that. What does it say he did? Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. He went back to work. The honor was nice, but it didn't change him. He was still a servant of the king. Mordecai had willingly accepted no honor, which was a kind of dishonor. And he did so for five years. So that when he finally received the honor, he appears thankful, but his ego does not inflate. In that way, he is a stark contrast to Haman, whose pride is the focus of this chapter. Haman is in the king's court seeking approval to have Mordecai executed for the crime of not honoring Haman. That is Mordecai's great offense. So unlike Mordecai, who humbly endured the dishonor of never receiving a reward, Haman, when he was dishonored by one person, seeks the most extreme response, which is, well, he's got to die. And like, now, his sinful pride cannot be contained. We get insight into his thinking about this pride in verse 6, where Haman thinks to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? He is so proud, so full of himself, he can't even imagine that there's anyone in the whole kingdom that the king could be thinking about honoring other than him. Just can't even imagine that possibility. And so when he's asked, well, what honor? Haman has to start thinking, well, I'm the number two to the king, and I can't be number one because he's the king, so like, what else is there? I can't get promoted any further. Well, maybe my dream as someone who has a huge ego is to have a parade thrown in my honor with people literally saying, this guy's awesome. How about that? And I get to dress up like king for a day and ride the king's horse and the king's crown, and it would be great. But God's writing the story. And when God writes stories about people who are proud like this, they eventually fall. That's what our Old Testament reading told us. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Haman sure fell. And this is really only part one. Next week is part two of that fall. He's got farther to fall. He's just hitting branches right now. He hasn't hit all the way down. Try to imagine Haman's total shock after he has just told them, as Sarah was asking the kids, what could you possibly desire? And Haman lays it all out there, dream day. 
He's like, all right. Now you, Haman, go do that for the guy you want dead, who dishonors you, who you hate, whom you feel is worthy of no honor at all. Imagine the blow to Haman. Think of how humbling it must have been for Haman to have to obey. The king commanded this. You have to go do this for your enemy. And he is crushed. Haman hurried to his house, he mourning with his head covered. Mourning is a word that is reserved for when people die. Nobody died. The only thing that died was Haman's pride. His ego was killed that day. And just like Proverbs said, his pride went before his destruction. His ego was destroyed as he led the horse around the city, saying the words he had hoped to hear for himself about his own enemy. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. He wanted to be on that horse, but he had fallen. God had providentially arranged for his haughty spirit to bring him down. So if God is providentially working to humble the proud and exalt the humble in this story, what does that tell us about how God is providentially working today in the lives of his people? Does God still write the same kind of story? Is he the same kind of author? Well, our story gives us a hint of that from the most unlikely of places, Haman's wife, Zeresh, with a bit of wisdom here. She seems to have changed her tune overnight since the night before she said, well, yeah, just kill him, fast. And yet then she says, after noticing this coincidental turn, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not be able to you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Even Zeresh knew that there was something different about this Jewish people. They kept having these coincidental moments where deliverance just happened to happen at the last possible moment. We happen to have read the whole book. We know from the rest of Scripture what Zeresh could only know in part, that God has made promises to his people, promising to protect them and bless them no matter what, so that even if the Jews suffer for a time, even a long time, God would eventually deliver his people. We are the recipients of similar promises as Christians because we also are God's people. And we have great hope of deliverance as well, because God has promised that a day is coming when he will bring ultimate deliverance by judging the whole world, that Jesus will come again and set everything right, punishing the wicked and saving his own people. And if the enemies of God seem built up with honor now, it is only to increase the level of their fall when Christ returns. For there will be a day. A final day when the proud will be humbled and sinners like us who have humbled ourselves and recognized our need of a Savior will be exalted in Christ. That's our great hope for the end of our story. But it's not quite the end yet. We are told it's coming soon. 
But at least as of right now, it is not the end. So how do we live with this hope? How do we live in a life that is not driven by coincidence, but by providence? Well, I have a few suggestions, exhortations to apply these ideas to our lives. First, let us not proudly seek honor in this life like Haman did. Don't be like the bad guy. That's a pretty simple one, right? Those who do seek that honor are sure to fall. In our New Testament reading from Luke 14, Jesus was chastising the religious leaders who wanted to make sure that everyone noticed how wonderful they were. They wanted that honor, and he tells them, don't do that. Because when you do that, just like Haman did, you're only setting yourself up to fall. Let us not strive for honor and recognition in this life because we know that honor will eventually come and God sees everything we do. When we stand before God, he will surely honor humble service to him, even if the world has never noticed it. And like Mordecai, we feel forgotten. Let us not seek honor in this life, for God honors us in other ways. Second, and similarly then, let us endure dishonor in this life. Mordecai's seeming contentment with not being recognized is a great example for us to follow. That people in high positions may dislike us even though we have done nothing wrong in their eyes. There will always be people in the world who just don't like God's people. That's just the way it is. So may we patiently endure dishonor in this life, knowing that God will bring ultimate justice at the end of time. Like Mordecai, we may feel overlooked, forgotten. But we do not need to wait for a sleepless night of the king who turns to just the right page in order for vindication. Because God in his word has told us that day is coming. It is not a chance or a coincidence. It is a sure thing that God will judge the living and the dead. Every deed, good or bad, will be accounted for. So let us endure dishonor in this life, trusting a day of judgment is coming. And third, let us remember the fact that God has graciously delighted to honor us far beyond what we deserve. We are sinners who have not served humbly. We often think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. But God has delighted to honor his people in Jesus Christ. And instead of honoring us according to what we have done, God graciously honors us based on the humble service of Jesus. God truly delights to honor those who are humble, who see themselves as sinners worthy of only dishonor, and who trust in the grace of the King so that we can be richly blessed by God. And so let us know that God delights to honor those who trust in Christ. And let us remember a great day of the Lord is coming. That can feel very much forgotten in a moment when the world seems silent. And when it seems the twists and turns of the world are stranger than fiction. But as God's people, let us remember that our God providentially works out his purposes for the good of his people. The world may seem to go against the principle that the proud will be humbled. But we only need to look at the cross. For on the cross, the perfect humble servant seemed to receive the ultimate dishonor. And it seemed that the world is one, that those who seek honor had won until that third day when Christ rose from the dead.
and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the most unlikely turn in the story where Jesus is exalted above every name in heaven and on earth, demonstrating that God truly does exalt the humble. So may we humbly trust in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and so be overwhelmed that in Christ we are those people in whom the King delights to honor. What a great privilege we have. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, may we not seek the honors of this world. May you keep our egos and pride in check, reminding us of our sinfulness and how it does not leave us until we die or Christ returns. And may we seek only to serve you as it is our duty. And may we trust that a day is coming when there will be reward, not rewards earned, but rewards graciously received in Christ. Lord, may our eyes be fixed on that hope, a certain hope, knowing that all of our stories weave together by your providence towards that day, that day when we will see our King face to face and we will hear those glorious words, well done, good and faithful servant, as we have sought to serve you, O Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.